When I was 10 years old, I got the opportunity to travel outside of the U.S. for the very first time. And I was so excited about this because I grew up in kind of the middle of nowhere, uh, rural Midwest. I'd never been anywhere, never been on an airplane, uh, never seen the ocean, you know, never, <laughs> never really been anywhere. And my dad was leading a team down to the Dominican Republic and he invited me to go along. And so I was so excited to, to get on an airplane and to see the ocean for the first time, to get to see the Caribbean, you know, and the, that blue water and to get to experience a culture that's different than the only one that I'd ever known. And so we went and it was just, it was the coolest thing. And I was living my best life. And, you know, most days we spent those days uh, working on projects kind of on the outskirts of Santo Domingo. And then one night, we ventured into the heart of the capital city uh, because we are going to go on this riverboat ride and have dinner and and see some of the sights and dance. But on our way there, we were approached by a young boy about my age. And he was half naked. Uh, the clothes that he had on were, were tattered and, and dirty. And he had this little tin can of dirty peanuts that he was selling and he asked us if we wanted to buy some and through a translator we began to hear some of this boy's story and we learned that his father split the moment that he found out that his mother was pregnant and that when he was very young his mother had passed away leaving him to try to survive on the streets by himself and so every day he picked peanuts out of the ground and put them in this little tin can and tried to sell enough to survive. And me being from the Midwest and living a middle class life and never really having to want for anything really in my life, my head was just, it just began to spin. Like I had no category for what I was hearing. Um, you know, my, I, I realized in that moment just how sheltered my life was. Because here's this boy who's about my age, and he kind of looks like me. He's got dark hair like I have and dark eyes like I have. His skin is just darker than mine. And the only thing really different about us is that he was born one click south. And I was born one click north. And because I was born where I was, I enjoyed so many luxuries. I never really had to want for anything in my life. I, the things that I complained about, I realized real quick, were so pointless and worthless. And this boy, who was born just one click south in a country different than my own, not all that far away, had struggled to survive every day of his young life. And it wrecked me. I remember we we climbed on that river, but I, before we did, I emptied out my pockets and gave this, this boy everything that I had. And we, I just wanted to help, you know what I mean? Uh, and I didn't know what else to do. And we climbed on this boat and we ate. And, and I remember, you know, people began to dance and floating down this river. And we went by all these areas that I don't know what to call them other than, than slums. They were really impoverished areas. Most of the houses, you know, were just you know, uh, scrap metal put together, leaning up against one another. There's no electricity or running water. 
And I remember these kids, seeing these kids come out of the darkness and run to the edge of the water and begin to dance to the music of this riverboat that we were on in the dark. And I just wept. I just wept for the entire ride because I had gotten a glimpse of somebody else's reality and this reality that to me, somehow, even at 10 years old, I knew was wrong. Like I knew somehow, like there's, there's nothing right about this. This, this can't possibly be what God intended for this boy, for these kids and these families that I saw on the riverside. And this was my first experience with the poor. And although I, I wouldn't have had these words for it at the time, really for the first time in my life, poverty was not an issue, right? It, it wasn't an idea or some reality, you know, somewhere far, far away. For the first time in my life, poverty had a name and a face and a story. And I was undone by that. And I, I would venture to guess that if you didn't grow up in abject poverty, your first experience might have been very similar to my own. Perhaps it was an experience that stayed with you for a very, very long time and maybe rattled you to the core of who you are. Maybe you can remember it like it was yesterday, even if it was decades ago. You know, the poor was a major theme in Jesus's teaching. In fact, as we enter into the words of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with these words, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right, we, we bump into this over and over again. He begins it by talking about the poor in spirit. But if you look at Luke 6, which is a parallel passage to this, he doesn't talk about the poor in spirit. He talks about the poor. He said, blessed are the poor. And then later in that same chapter, he sort of lets loose on the rich. Like he kind of just gives it to him, you know, it makes us think like, well, what's that? That's, that's interesting because there's nothing wrong with being rich, right? I mean, I suppose that is unless maybe there's something that we don't know. You know, what's going on there? In Luke 4 as well, if you remember, Jesus, he's in the synagogue and he sits down and the scroll is given to him. He opens a scroll from the prophet Isaiah and he reads this text that essentially he is revealing to the people his mission and his message. And he says this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. What is going on here? I think it would be really helpful for us to take a bit of a deep dive into the world that Jesus lived in because it's hard to really grasp these words and the weight of them and how they were received and why this was so close to Jesus's heart if we don't really understand the context in which Jesus walked and taught and preached these words. Now, I'll just give a little credit where credit's due. Uh, Gerhard E. Lenski has done a lot of historical work on this, and I found him cited in a few different places as, as I was digging in, including Richard Rohr's book, Jesus' Plan for a New World, um, which is one of my sources. Uh, but Lenski is really uh, the man who's done the heavy lifting here, so big props to him. But we have to remember that Jesus grew up in an agrarian society, right? 
And in an agrarian society, there's essentially eight different classes of people. And you kind of break them down into two different groups. You've got the ruling class on one side, and you've got the peasant class on the other, right? It's almost like you've got the right side of the tracks and the wrong side of the tracks. You've got the ruling class over here, and you've got the peasant class over here. And within both of those classes, there's four kind of subgroups in both. And so I want to talk first. Let's talk first about the ruling class in Jesus's day. The first class of the ruling class was the ruler, right? At the top of the society, there was the ruler that just one person made up this entire class, typically uh, the king or the queen. And in most agrarian societies, that ruler had complete access over at least 25% and often up to 50% of the gross national product. I just want to make sure you heard that. One person in this society, one person in this culture has unrestricted access to and control of 25 to 50% of the gross national product. Just one. That's the ruler. The second class is the governing class. And they were, they're a small class. They only consisted about 1% of the population. And these were the bureaucrats, the nobles, uh, and the officials who essentially surrounded that ruler. And this little group, listen to this, they received at least an additional 25% of the gross national product. So I just want to make sure you caught that. Between the ruler, one human being, and the governing class, which is just 1% of the total population, 1%, they have unrestricted access to and control of somewhere between 50 to 75% of all of the resources available. Now, there are a lot of different words we can call that. A lot of different words that describe that reality. One of them is injustice. That is injustice at its purest level. It is, another word would be evil. It is pure evil. Uh, This is not reflective of the heart of God. This is not reflective of, of his intentions for creation as laid out for humanity in scripture. Um, But more than any of those things, the important part is to understand, friends, this is the world in which Jesus lived. Now, the third class of the ruling class is what we call the retainer class. And the name kind of tips his hat to the purpose of this class because they ultimately served to retain or maintain the system, right? The system as it is. So these were like your lower class bureaucrats. We're talking military, scribes, and teachers in Jesus's day. They were the soldiers and they were the secretaries and they consisted of just 5% of the population and their energy in life was essentially spent serving the political elite. I mean, their ultimate priority was to keep their jobs and maintain their status. So they fought to keep this system of injustice in place, right? Their goal was to keep that 1% both in power and happy. Why? Because it served their self-interest, right? This is how they got paid. Now, side note, an important one for us is many of the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders we find Jesus squaring off with at times, they are in this group we're talking about. Many of them are wealthy. And they are wealthy largely from benefiting from the system. And in uh, in particular, the temple system. And one of the things we have to realize is 
Yes, there were there were times when when people got really upset, when they got really angry with Jesus for theological reasons. But it wasn't just that. I mean, it was their conflict was deeply economical. And part of the reason they were always in conflict with Jesus was because as we see in the Sermon on the Mount, right, Jesus is reversing the order of things. He is announcing that God is turning everything upside down, which generally, by the way, is not what people want, right? Especially when you're on top, right? When you're on top, your goal is to stay on top. When you're winning, the goal is to keep winning. Uh, when you benefit from the system as it is, the goal is to keep things the way that they are. But Jesus is announcing that God as the kingdom of God comes in, it is turning everything upside down. And so when Jesus is doing that, what he's doing is he's threatening their power and position. And with it, their streams of income too. See, the temple system, many of you probably are vaguely familiar with this, but it was a very complex system of worship within the Jewish people, within their religious expression. And we see glimpses of this in places like Leviticus and places like Numbers, which rightly to rightly navigate requires their expertise. So in this system, uh, it was such that if you're going to express your devotion to God, uh, you would come to the temple and you would do the things you need to do there to, to make things right with God, to be with God. And to do that, you needed these scribes and Pharisees because they knew the rules, right? They knew the hoops that you needed to jump through and those hoops were considerable. And so you'd need to help them to walk you through this. And they were happy to do it for a substantial fee. And so this whole system of worship was not only expensive, it was corrupt. Like these poor people were already being taxed to death by Rome. But then on top of it, in this dog-eat-dog -dog world in which they're living, the Jewish people's own religious authorities only added to that oppression with their own system of religious taxation. And that temple system, it essentially sucked the economic life out of their own people. And friends, look, hear me on this. Those people included Jesus's friends. Those people had to live under that and suffer under that, included Jesus's family. Right, and so it should not surprise us in places like Matthew 23 when we find Jesus confronting them and essentially saying, what on earth? Like people are coming to you. They're looking for help. And instead of using your power and authority to help them come before their heavenly father and commune with him and be right with him, you're using your power and authority to keep people from him. You're shutting them off from the father, from my father and his kingdom, you hypocrites. Right, we find Jesus doing things like that all the time. Because this whole process, this whole system was so elaborate, and frankly, it was so expensive that those that wanted to worship rightly simply couldn't. Like many people couldn't even pull it off, and many people couldn't, couldn't afford it. So when you find Jesus, we find Jesus going around just healing people, like just casting out demons and saying things like, you are clean, you are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, you are healed, be free, walk in your freedom, like go, you're, you're saved, you're forgiven. The scribes are angry, right? They're constantly like, you can't do this, you can't do this, right? Well, why are they so upset? They're upset because Jesus is taking away their job security. So imagine the scandal. When John the Baptist goes out in the wilderness, right? Not adorned with priestly garb, he's in a loincloth. He goes into the river and he proclaims that God is doing something 
new, right? And we know that he's paving the way for Jesus. He's calling everybody to repent and get ready because there is a fresh wind blowing and the Lamb of God is about to step onto the scene and change everything. Through him, God is going to change everything. And where does John the Baptist do this? Oh, not in the temple. Mm -mm -mm. Nope, out in the middle of nowhere, outside the temple, away from its taxes, apart from its leaders patting their pockets, without hoops to jump through, without documentation or ordination, he steps into the river and essentially says to every man, woman, and child, I've got a new word for you, friends. God is reversing the order because now God's grace and forgiveness is as accessible and free as this river water. Come and take a drink. Come on, it's yours if you want it. And Jesus picks up the baton and only builds on this. Jesus ignored the debt codes and he ignored the purity codes and he, he ignored the whole honor and shame system that held it all together. He just kept healing people, freeing people, saving people, and bypassing the whole corrupt religious system as they cried out, you can't do that, you can't do that. And as they did, Jesus just said and showed this reality that God is indeed turning everything upside down. He is reversing the order of thing and the kingdom of God is for them too. And you can't shut them off. Not anymore. God has heard their cries and he's done with this whole messed up thing. So you want to know why the religious leaders had Jesus killed? There you go. Right? You don't you don't get killed for wandering around the wilderness offering free hugs and being a nice guy. You get killed when you square off with powerful kingdoms and they get threatened. And that's exactly what Jesus did and that's exactly what he and his kingdom continues to do today. Now the fourth class of the ruling class is the merchant class. And it's a little hard for us to comprehend the merchant class being this small um, as it is in this time, because for us, it's, it's massive. But back there, back then, this was a really small class. It was like less than 5% of the total population. Whereas for us, you know, merchants essentially control the world <laughs> in the day of capitalism. And that, you know, that whole thing wouldn't even really progress and become a big thing until the 13th century, uh, when the producing and selling of consumer goods became a big deal. But back then, it was a very small class. So that's there you have essentially, that's the right side of the tracks. All right, that's the ruling class. Now the peasant class, the other side of the tracks, they had four different classes as well. And then, now get this, and this, this will give you a picture of the crowd as you imagine Jesus's ministry and this huge diverse crowd listening to the Sermon on the Mount. The peasant class, they only had access to 20% of the resources but they were 80% of the population. Okay, so everything that we just talked about was just 20% of the population in the ruling class, but they controlled and had access to and consumed 80% of the resources. Now you've got the vast majority of Jesus's crowd, his peers, his friends, his family, his countrymen, 80% of the population, they had access to just 20% of the resources. The first of, this, of the peasant class are the farmers. And as we've mentioned before, uh, I think maybe we didn't hear, um, we've done it in person. I can't remember if I mentioned on the podcast, but, but the farmers, very few of the farmers actually owned their land. Most of them were tenant farmers where somebody else owned the land. Uh, increasingly, that was Rome who owned and controlled the land and they would pay rent on that. 
And they would have very little control about the terms of that agreement. It could change on a whim. They could take that land from them, kick them off the land at any point in time. And that's exactly what happened a lot. And this is part of the reason why we find in so many of Jesus's parables that he talks about landlords and tenants, because these folks were were already being oppressed and kicked down. And they lived in this place of fear where they could lose everything they have at any given moment, just at the whim of the ruling class, whatever they felt that given day. And so hear, hear this, for farmers, two-thirds of what they produced was spent on rent, taxes, and tolls. You hear that? Two-thirds. Two-thirds was taken away right off the top. And that included taxes to Rome, and that included the temple tax to their own rulers, which only served to, to support this corrupt temple system. So I want you to just imagine for a moment being a peasant and trying to survive as a farmer in a season of drought, when it just won't rain and the soil is dry and you're praying for rain, but it's just not coming. I mean, it's already so hard to survive to begin with, but in a season of doubt, which undoubtedly happened, you have to give whatever, two thirds of whatever you managed to farm out to the ruling class immediately. And then you had to save from your harvest whatever grain and seeds that you needed to be able to plant for the next year. And after all of that, you had to figure out and try to learn how to survive and live off of whatever was left, which by the way, is, is pretty much how the working poor have, have, been, have lived since the beginning of time. And in some parts of the world that continues today. Second class of the peasant class were the artisans. And these were the skilled workers, right? These were people who were good with their hands, people who built things and created things, and they're very gifted, but they're also very, very poor. Now, Jesus was likely a part of this group. His father, we know, is a carpenter or a stonemason, and Jesus grew up in the family business. This was likely his reality growing up. This is where he fell in society as it was. And so if you want to know where Jesus's place in the world was, both as a boy and as a man, this was it. He was a part of the bottom 20%. Jesus was a poor, simple man who knew personally well how peasants struggled because he watched it. He lived it. He grew up in it. Right? And so many of the people that Jesus is preaching to in the Sermon on the Mount throughout his ministry were in the same situation. And Jesus knew their reality. He and much of his audience, they knew each other. I mean, they understood one another. And no wonder the ruling class was threatened, right? Now that leaves us two classes left, the bottom of the bottom, the bottom classes. The first, it's referred to as the unclean. The unclean, either due to their origin or their occupation, they were deemed unclean. So for example, in Jewish society, anyone who took care of pigs was considered unclean. And that might sound a little harsh, but truthfully, this is, this is nothing new. This is, this is not new at all. It, it continues to exist today. I mean, depending on when in human history we're talking about or what part of the world, you know, you grew up in, um, there are, we have lots of examples of this. People of color, uh, members of the LGBTQ community, the elderly, the HIV positive, 
people with disabilities, immigrants, foreigners. Are you hearing me? I mean, it still exists, but we are maybe just a little bit more subtle about it. But it still exists, and it existed in Jesus' day too. Right? These were people in Jesus' day that they were considered outsiders of the system. Um, by the religious elites, like they were considered ignorant, backwards, even disgusting. They didn't know the Torah, right? They didn't observe the purity codes or the rituals or the steps for purification. In fact, in Jesus's day, rabbis had a saying for their students who were in training, as we talked about in our, our series a while back, um, Dust of the Rabbi. There are the, the saying goes like this, there are six things that are a disgrace for a rabbinic student. And among those six was this, to recline at table with one of these unclean. <laughs> I know you're connecting the dots. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> oh, because of what we know about this rabbi Jesus, because Jesus did this on a regular basis, right? The accusation was he eats with sinners. <laughs> and that was this category of people that they're talking about. He eats with the unclean. He eats with sinners. He eats with prostitutes. And for many of people, this was proof enough that this man shouldn't be trusted or followed, that he was out of his mind. But what we also know about Jesus is he was also a prophet. And prophets would often speak prophetic words, but they would all also live prophetic messages, right? Where they would act in such a way that backed their message and in ways that actually either reinforced or were stronger or clearer than their message. And so, you know, uh, it, when Jesus sits around the table on purpose with these unclean over and over again, and we know the accusations leveled against him. Right? He's this friend of sinners and tax collectors. Uh, he's, a, he's a drunk. He's a glutton and all these things. He's doing it in a prophetic role to show the heart of God that maybe, just maybe, those that assume that they have nothing to do at the table of God, maybe, just maybe, they have seats of honor. <laughs> Not only are they invited, they're the most important people at the table. And maybe just maybe those that assume that they have a place at the table, maybe just maybe they don't. Because God is reversing the order of things. He's turning everything upside down. Well, that leaves just one class. That was the bottom class. Referred to as the expendable. And this would have consisted of roughly 10% or so of the peasant class. These were people that were not only unemployed, they were unemployable. To survive, they often had to lie and steal and cheat. Many of them were criminals, and if they weren't criminals, they were beggars. Right? They either had to take advantage of others or live off the charity of others. And these would be the people that you wouldn't be surprised to find scavenging through a garbage dump to survive. Or if you've ever seen the film Slumdog Millionaire, uh, you've got a pretty good picture of this as it follows the story of these kids who grew up in abject poverty in India. And we watch some of them and some of their friends move into begging 
and many of them move into crime and they're trying to figure out which path they're going to go just to survive. And this reality continues to exist in various parts of the world. And there's a word in the Greek for this kind of poverty. And that is the word patokas. Patokas. These were the expendable. All right, so let's, let's go back to the text. All these people are flocking around Jesus. Big, huge crowds are gathering around him. Diverse crowds, all different kinds of backgrounds backgrounds, all different kinds of places on the spiritual spectrum of belief and unbelief, God or multiple gods or different gods, and they gather around him. Jesus sits down, takes the place of the teacher. His disciples are there, and Jesus essentially says this, well, I got some good news and I've got some bad news. The good news is everything that I've been saying is true. The kingdom of God is at hand. It is right here. It is right now. It is real and it is true and it is available to you with the same kind of grace that John the Baptist said. It is as available to you as river water and it is available to all the people that the religious elite have told you don't deserve a place at the table of grace. It is available. The kingdom life is available to you here, right here, right now. But he says also, I've also got some bad news. And that is that this work, this movement, this authority and power and life is going to come through people, not the ones that you thought. It's not going to come through the, the people you think. And it's not going to flow through who you think because I'm reversing the order. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you want to guess which word he uses for the poor there? It's patokas. Right? He used that word that describes the bottom group in the peasant class. He uses the word that describes the totally expendable. The ones who are unemployed and unemployable. The beggars. He says, blessed are the beggars. Of course, as you might imagine, this elicits a very mixed response, we'll just say. <laughs> so before I go any further, let me just ask you a, an honest question. How would you respond to that? But if you can, enter into the story and imagine hearing these words, not in 2022, wherever you find yourself right now on the other side of the world, but you're standing there hearing the rabbi's words and you're watching as the crowd responds in different ways. And some of them are opting out, right? Others are leaving as he says these things like, what a lunatic, this guy's off his rocker, he's speaking insanity. And then you see others whose eyes are getting wide and they're leaning in and he's, their hearts are beginning to beat. Like, can this be possible? What about you? Like, how would you respond if you were there? Now, I suppose how you respond probably depends on a number of different factors, doesn't it? If you were rich, this would be a very hard thing to hear, wouldn't it? If you were part of the ruling class, <laughs> I mean, maybe this would be like a load off your shoulders because finally you have the evidence that you need to bail. Like, oh my goodness. I was kind of interested in the show and what this guy is saying for a while, but this guy is crazy. He is out of his mind. He is speaking nonsense. See you later, boys. I'm going home. This would have been just the excuse you've been waiting for, right? Maybe if you're rich, 
But if you were poor, these would have been the words of life. If you could hear them. Right? And, and, and you know, you would lean in and your eyes would begin to grow wider and your heart would begin to beat. And you wonder, maybe, just maybe, could this be true? Could this be the heart of God after all? Is the God's goodness and grace and presence available to me and to mine? After all the religious elite have told me my entire life that I don't add up and I don't belong and I don't have a place. After all the years of trying to scrape by a living and just keep my family alive, I couldn't, couldn't afford to participate in this, this temple system. I'm, I'm not rich enough. And all these years I thought God had turned his back on me. Could it be? Maybe, just maybe. You know, I love Dallas Willis' words uh, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. He says, oh, these words were good news to the seriously crushed ones, to the broken, the broken. It was good news to the drug heads and the divorced, to the HIV positive and the herpes ridden. It was good news to the brain damaged and the incurably ill, to the barren and to the pregnant too many times or at the wrong time. It was good news for the lonely, for the incompetent, for the stupid. It was good news for the emotionally starved and the emotionally dead. Because he's reversing the order and he's turning it all upside down. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And you know, maybe just maybe if you were in that crowd and you knew the words of scripture, maybe if you were knowledgeable, you would hear the words a different way and you would hear him speak, this guy, Jesus. And maybe just maybe you would have the thought that, man, this guy, he sounds like the prophets. He who came before him. I mean, you might recognize that what Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes, it's not a new thing. It's actually a very, very old thing because what he's saying, it sounds like Isaiah. It sounds like Jeremiah calling down judgment on the people of God for their treatment of the poor. If you knew the scriptures, you know that what he's saying, it's, this is the heart of God for the least and the lost. You will find it throughout the scriptures. And maybe just maybe you'd wonder like, man, is this, is this Elijah I'm listening to? Like, is this John the Baptist come back from the dead? Because this guy speaks like the prophets. Maybe just maybe could he be the one? Friends, for those of us who follow in the way of Jesus, I think that there is an invitation here for us. And I think part of that invitation is to not look away, to not ignore, to not go about our religious business as if we don't know that we live in a profoundly broken world that does not reflect the heart of the Father. Because we serve a God who has said, I'm taking it all back. I'm making it all new. <laughs> that, is, that is our God. That's where this story is going, by the way. That's how it's going to end this grand narrative that you and I are a part of. And as followers of Jesus, then we're not just invited. We are called to put on display the inbreaking reality of God, to put flesh on the good news whenever and wherever we are able and to show a broken world, just as Jesus did, that this is what God is like. He sees you. He's heard your cries. 
He heard every one of your prayers. You are not forgotten. You are not forsaken. You are his beloved. You know, I mentioned at the uh, beginning that there's something about the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' message of the kingdom that kids just seem to get before us old folks. You know, this past weekend, one of the gals that stayed in our home is a gal named Alicia. At least we'll, we'll call her Alicia. And she stayed in our home actually a lot over the past uh, year, year and a half. And when we met Alicia, she and her mom, uh, both immigrants um, fleeing here from Honduras, left the rest of their family and they were living in a small camper uh, behind a rundown home in what is one of the worst and least safe places in Knoxville. Definitely not a place where you want to be as a mother and as a young daughter. And they moved here in the middle of the school year, and Alicia was dropped into our daughter, Chloe's class. And she was dropped in there without the ability to speak a word of English in the middle of the school year. And so I don't know if you can imagine that. I can't imagine the amount of courage that that takes and the amount of fear and disorientation that has to be involved in a move like that. But there she was. And I remember Chloe, Chloe sharing with us about this girl who's in her class, and she's really struggling. She's really alone. And uh, those first few days, they were, those first days were really hard and really lonely, I think, for her. And so without really prompting, but from mom and dad, Chloe decided to one day to pull up a chair next to her, open up her school-issued Chromebook, pull up Google Translate, and say, Hi, my name is Chloe. And they began going back and forth, translating from Spanish to English, English to Spanish. And she lit up like a Christmas tree. And, and perhaps not surprisingly, from that day on, those two were inseparable. And they've been inseparable ever since. We affectionately referred to her as our third daughter, although I think there's several daughters that we call our third daughter. But Alicia has become one of those because she spends so much time in her home. And I told you, there's there's just something about kids that seem to get this, right? They just intuitively seem to be at least postured in such a way to dial into and get what Jesus is saying. And it's not just children. It's also the poor. Like their hearts are just postured for it. And they can hear it as the good news that it's meant to be. And I think for those of us who are followers of Jesus, I would just say this, that there are opportunities, whether you find yourself, you know, in the middle of a wealthy suburb in Atlanta or where, whether you find yourself wherever on the spectrum, there are opportunities to join in and put this good news on display. And it, it might involve something big somewhere down the road. Maybe it involves uh, like Morgan, who's a part of our community, starting a nonprofit caring for widows in Haiti and training them and empowering them and helping them start businesses. Maybe, right? And it might maybe somewhere down the road involve something like starting a business like Tyler, who's a part of our community as well, who, who restores neglected houses in order to make them available to refugees and to immigrants and to employ them and to give them a place to live and a, a road to home ownership that they would never have an opportunity otherwise. 
right? It might involve that. Or friends, it might just involve having eyes to see the overlooked and the alone around us, to see them and to enter into their story and simply say, hi, my name is Chloe. To sit with, to enter into, to advocate for. Blessed are the poor and the poor in spirit. You know, I imagine the discerning ones who are listening to this is, and the, the discerning ones who are listening to Jesus also recognized really the truth underneath all the other truth as well. And that is that regardless of what class we might find ourselves in, whether it be in Jesus's day, whether it was the, the ruling class with an endless access to resources, or whether it be the peasant class who so often found themselves fighting for whatever resources were left, or somewhere in between, that at the end of the day, as we stand before God, we are all poor. Right? Whether we find ourselves in a slum in Kathmandu or a palace on the British yard, we are all impoverished. We are all destitute without the undeserved grace of God. Every single one of us, we come to him broken and needy with our hands empty. In our best moments saying, Lord God, I need you. I can't do this. I'm nothing without you. I can't muster up enough strength. I can't, I can't manifest enough faith. I'm too small. I'm too weak. I can't do this. And friends, if you're there today as you listen to this, I pray you hear his words now. Blessed are you, poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Grace and peace, friends.